This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for December 16th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we interview journalists and scientists about their work published in Science and the Sister Journals. We've got a great show today, but before we get started, one reminder, if you haven't already, please take our podcast survey. It's short, there's a chance for a prize, and we really wanna hear from you. The link is science.org slash podcast, and just click on the pop-up and away you go. All right, on to the show. This week, we've got the 2022 Breakthrough of the Year. Producer Megan Cantwell talks with editor of the section, Greg Miller, about the top science from the year. That includes the breakthrough and some of the runners-up. Then we look back at the year in science books. Books editor Valerie Thompson joins me to share her picks for the best books of the year and one hot movie. We're nearing the end of the year, which means it's time for one of science's traditions highlighting significant advances in science with a breakthrough of the year, as well as nine runners up. I'm here with Greg Miller, who edited the section this year to talk through some of the highlights. Thanks so much for joining me, Greg. Glad to be here. So we usually save the breakthrough of the year for last, so we'll stick with that tradition too. I want to start with one of my favorite ones because I edited the video for this. It's a giant bacterium that was discovered in this mangrove swamp. I think it'd be good for listeners to get a sense of just how big this giant bacterium is. Could you talk about what it looks like? This thing is kind of crazy. These are these long thread-like cells that can be up to two centimeters long, almost an inch. And you can see them with the naked eye. They're like maybe the size of a pushpin or something like that, but they're not straight. They're kind of curvy and uh, just really kind of cool. How much bigger is this than the previous biggest bacterium that's been discovered? There's another one that was like the size of a poppy seed, maybe, but 
compared to typical bacteria, they're thousands of times bigger. Is this bacterium structured very differently than what we traditionally see in bacteria? Yeah, this bacterium, it's called Thiomargarita magnifica, and it's weird in a lot of different ways. And the size is one of them, but in some ways that's kind of the least of it. If you think back to biology 101, there was the whole thing about prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Eukaryotes are organisms like plants and animals and us whose cells have lots of little compartments called organelles that specialize in doing different things that the cell needs to do. But prokaryotes, which include bacteria, are essentially just a big sack of free-floating DNA and protein and other stuff, or so scientists thought until they discovered this particular bacterium, which is this weird intermediate structure inside the cells where it has these things that the researchers are calling pepins. They're membrane-bound compartments where it has DNA and also ribosomes, the machinery for making proteins. And it also has this network of internal membranes that it uses to make ATP, which is kind of a molecule that cells use as fuel. Scientists are thinking that this might be kind of a microbial missing link that they could study to learn something about the evolution, how how eukaryotes first evolved. Moving on from the warm Caribbean, this next discovery took place in the Arctic desert. Scientists have been able to uncover an ancient ecosystem from environmental DNA that's over 2 million years old. And it was previously thought that DNA could only stay intact for about a million years. Why is it that in this case, researchers were able to push that timeline back so far, almost double? It's kind of amazing that they've recovered DNA that's 2 million years old. And there were a few things. So one, they did this in Greenland at the northern tip of Greenland. The DNA was preserved in permafrost. So the cold really helps preserve it. The other thing is the soil there plays a role. There's quartz and clay that have minerals that give them a charged surface that binds to the DNA and protects it from being degraded by enzymes or antioxidants, other compounds that would otherwise break it down over time. And what did they find that the environment was like during that period two million years ago? It was probably not as icy in Greenland at that time. It was a lot warmer than it is today. It was sort of a coastal forest And they identified more than 100 different kinds of plants and animals that lived there, different trees, poplars and birch trees, all kinds of animals. There were reindeer and lemmings and geese and mastodons. So in the artist reconstruction that we ran in the magazine, it's like this really beautiful place that is unlike anything that exists on Earth today. That's amazing. It is pretty specific conditions in order to preserve DNA and be able to analyze it from 2 million years ago. So are there other sites that this research team or others have in mind that they want to do this analysis with now that they know that it is possible? They're hoping to do this at other sites in the Arctic. You wouldn't be able to use this in a tropical rainforest where it's hot and wet and things degrade. But the really cool thing is this is an area of the world where there aren't a lot of fossils, at least vertebrate fossils. So being able to use ancient DNA to reconstruct the organisms that used to live in the Arctic at different time points in the Earth's history is really cool. Does that mean some of the organisms they're finding might not even be ones that we've discovered before or even know about? Yeah, that's possible. Although I think they're limited because they're looking, they're comparing their snippets of DNA that they recovered from the soil against DNA libraries from known organisms. If there's something totally crazy that used to live there, 
that has no counterpart on Earth today, it might be difficult to identify it. That's so cool. But also I'm like, man, I want to see what those things look like. If we just have the DNA, right? We don't have a picture of what actually the cool organism that we've never discovered looks like. Maybe someday AI can reconstruct the organism from the, the DNA snippets. Well, we could go on to AI then. That's a good transition. <laughs> kind of related to last year's breakthrough of the year, which was AI's ability to predict the structure of proteins. And it's back on our list, not as the breakthrough this year, but as a runner up. The piece in the magazine did touch a little bit on advances in proteins themselves. So what kind of strides have been made in predicting proteins in the past year? Yeah, so that was last year's breakthrough of the year. The big one was using AI to predict the three-dimensional structure of proteins based on their amino acid sequence. This year, there were all kinds of breakthroughs in AI that led us to think it was justified in making it another runner-up. And in protein structures, in particular, what they did building on last year's work was to go beyond just figuring out the structure of an existing protein and actually create entirely novel protein structures that aren't known to exist naturally, but could conceivably be created in a lab. They could open up all kinds of doors for drugs, or they could be used in making vaccines or different kinds of building materials or nanomachines. There's a lot of potential that I think people are just starting to think about. Outside of proteins, there were definitely a lot of other cool areas in AI that moved forward. DeepMind, a company that's behind a lot of different programs like AlphaZero, where professional Go, Shogi, and chess players have been defeated by the AI, they've released something new this year called AlphaCode. How exactly does this work? The theme that unites our, our AI breakthrough this year is, is kind of creativity. So creating novel proteins is one thing. What AlphaCode does is create computer code. So it can be given a string of text in ordinary English and write computer code to solve that problem. And granted, these are kind of abstract numerical problems. It's not like, you know, solve my relationships or anything like that, but it's a step towards algorithms that can create their own algorithms, including computer code to solve problems that might be practical at some level. And also on the artistic front, there's the text-to-image models, which I've had a lot of fun playing with, like Dolly. And OpenAI, the company behind Dolly, released Dolly 2 this year. The improvement between Dolly and Dolly 2 in just a year is pretty staggering. How exactly are these models working? And how are they able to have an advance like that crazy so fast? It involves something called diffusion models, where the algorithms are trained by being given a, a very noisy image and a string of text and just iteratively pulling out an image from the noise based on the text input they've been given. But like you say, the, the results are, are just incredible. They're, they're really realistic and, and stunning images. Now we're going to talk about some exciting answers to a longstanding medical mystery which is the link between Epstein-Barr virus, a common virus that many people can get, and how it leads to multiple sclerosis. How exactly did they firm up the link between this virus and disorder? Part of the problem has been that, although pretty much everybody who has MS also has antibodies, suggesting that they were exposed to Epstein-Barr virus, the virus is so common that 95% of the people without MS also have antibodies to Epstein-Barr. It just makes it really hard for epidemiologists to nail it down. 
But this year, there was a huge study published in Science in January where the researchers combed through medical records for 10 million active duty U.S. military service people. So it's just an enormous data set. They were looking for people who, when they first enlisted, had not previously been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus, and then they tracked them through their records over the years to see who got infected with Epstein-Barr and then which of those people went on to get MS. To make a long story short, they found that infection with Epstein-Barr virus raised the risk of getting MS 32 times. So 32 times more likely to get MS if you've had Epstein-Barr virus. That's more than the amount by which smoking increases the risk of lung cancers. It's a, it's a really huge impact. Coincidentally, another team of researchers also identified a potential mechanism by which Epstein-Barr virus is causing MS. How exactly does this work? There was another paper this year that also took a big step towards nailing down a mechanism of how this works. What they found was there's a protein on the virus that happens to resemble a protein that's also found in the human brain and spinal cord. What they think is that when the immune system responds to the virus by making antibodies, some of those antibodies that recognize the viral protein also recognize a protein found on nerve cells and might be triggering the immune system to attack the body's own nervous system. If Epstein-Barr virus is kind of dormant in like a lot of us, then why is it that some people have that mechanism that happens and other people don't? There are genetic risks for it too. So it could be some combination of environmental and genetic risks like so many. I don't know that this sheds any light on that. Considering both these advances, is there anything on the helm for researchers to look into in terms of a treatment based on this information or is it still pretty far out? It's still pretty far out, but I think it raises the hope that antiviral drugs that could track down the virus that's sort of hibernating in cells and kill it could potentially be a treatment for MS or the vaccines, and there are vaccines in clinical trials now against Epstein-Barr virus, could conceivably be given to young kids and prevent them from getting MS as well. So those are all the runners-up we're going to discuss, but there are a lot more that you can read about. If you head to science.org, you can check out the rest. Some other highlights include how the Black Death altered human immune genes and also the first test mission to redirect the trajectory of an asteroid, which was also covered on the podcast in September. So you can check that out as well. And now it is time to talk about the breakthrough of the year. So let's start with what it is, Greg. All right. So this one is not so much a scientific discovery as a machine for making discoveries. It's the new space telescope, JWST, which was put into orbit this year. It's one of the most complex and expensive science missions ever sent into space. It took 20 years to build. It almost seemed like at one point, JWST wasn't even going to happen. Yeah, I think about 10 years ago or so, Congress was threatening to shut it down because it was running over cost. There were just all kinds of obstacles, some technological, some political, but it's finally in space. Is it delivering on what people thought it would deliver on? Yeah, it's still really early days, but in July, there was a big press event and President Biden unveiled the first images, which were just spectacular. I think a lot of people have probably seen them now. They're just these gorgeous, detailed images of, of different parts of the universe. The science is still to come, but most scientists 
think this is going to be an incredible piece of equipment that will be in operation for years and even decades to come. What are kind of the major questions that JWST will be able to answer that previous telescopes like Hubble or Kepler weren't able to? One of the things that I think astronomers are most excited about is using the infrared detectors on JWST to study the earliest stars and galaxies in the universe that were formed not so long after the Big Bang. And the infrared is really important because the light from these early galaxies and stars, it takes billions of years to get to us because it's so far away. And because the universe is expanding, that light is shifted into the infrared part of the spectrum where JWST goes beyond the capabilities of Hubble and other telescopes is with all the infrared instruments on board that should allow astronomers to get a better look at some of those earliest galaxies and stars. Maybe a few years from now, something that JWST discovers could be the breakthrough of the year then. It could be. We'll have to see then. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. All right. Thanks a lot. Greg Miller is a contributing editor for Science. You can find links to all the content we talked about and more at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the best in books for 2022. And don't forget, take our survey at science.org slash podcast. Click on the pop-up. There's a chance for a prize. URL will also be in the show description. All right, now we have Valerie. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Now we have one of my favorite end of the year traditions for the podcast, Valerie Thompson, Science's Books Editor is here to talk about this year in science books. And we have some great ones. Hi, Valerie. Hi, Sarah. Before we get to your selections, which I am very excited about, and actually many of them would make pretty good last-minute holiday gifts, can we talk about more overall what this year in books has been like? Have you noticed any trends in what's coming across your desk and what you're deciding to send out for a review? I think one of the big things that I've noticed, and this is part of a larger trend, is that there's a lot more books that have been really grappling with the assumptions that get baked into science. So rejecting the idea of the scientist as this unbiased observer and really pushing readers to think of them as, as real people who are embedded in particular times and places and cultures and all that that entails. So this is something that's been happening a lot, obviously, in conversations about AI and algorithms, but it's also happening in conversations about space colonization, where there's a lot of religious overtones, these ideas of manifest destiny that are embedded in this kind of pursuit. And, and of course, things like gender and sex and race, those types of issues. So not only looking at 
what are the biases and worldviews that are baked into the way that we've asked scientific questions about these ideas, but also things like whose views did we miss in the past? Okay, so we're going to get started, but I should mention we don't have any books on food this year. <laughs> but that's just because we spent a whole year featuring books and authors that cover food, science, and agriculture. So if you haven't listened to those interviews, they're wonderful. They're hosted by Angela Saney. Please do check them out. It's a great primer on the world of food science, and I will link to it in the show description. Okay, onto our list of mentionables, <laughs> Valerie. I kind of got two themes here from what you sent. One is giving us science through these alternative means, like through the senses or through the emotions. And then the other theme is what the heck are we supposed to do about climate? So <laughs> let's start with these uh, sensational science books. Uh, this one, Other Lands, it just sounds really amazing. Can you talk about what caught your attention about this book? This is Other Lands, A Journey Through Earth's Extinct Worlds, and this is written by paleobiologist Thomas Halliday. This one is really neat. It's basically a fully immersive tour of these pivotal moments in Earth's history. The author goes back and visits these 16 major fossil sites around the world, everywhere from the northern slope of Alaska, where we learn about the creatures that lived on the Mammoth Steppe during the Upper Pleistocene, to Kanapoi, Kenya, where we learn about the early hominids that lived there four million years ago. What's really cool is the lengths that he goes to to bring each site to life. So he's really describing the sights and the sounds and the sensations that the animals that lived in these places were experiencing. I really like this quote I found in the review. I'm going to read it. It's about that place on the steppe, the mammoth steppe, where before Beringia went away. To the roaming horses of the North Slope and to the cave lions that pursue them, the steppe must seem immovably wide. But when seen at the scale of deep time, permanence is an illusion. And then he ends with, as the ice retreats, all it takes is a drop of rain and the hard land beneath the stamping hooves will soon give way. All it takes is a flicker and the aurora dies. It's just so beautiful, but it's all based on, you know, these very important fossil sites. It's just, it sounds like a really amazing book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you captured it really nicely with that quote. It's the writing is so evocative that it's, you know, you want to learn more. Another sensational book that you picked here, it seems to lead readers down emotional paths to science. This is called How Far the Light Reaches. And this is about a writer's personal life but also underwater creatures. How do those two things go together? Right, right. So this is How Far the Light Reaches by science writer Sabrina Imbler. And it's like you said, it's kind of a twofer. So each of the book's 10 essays intertwine a personal story about the author's life, their coming of age, their relationships, with kind of an analogous example from the aquatic world. So it's basically a literary memoir that's wrapped in science writing. Hmm. What's a good example of how this writer's life is like a marine animal. There's a chapter called Hybrids, for example, in which Imbler explores being biracial. And this is intertwined with a story about a hybrid butterfly fish that was collected in Australia in the 1970s. And then there's another one called Pure Life, which draws parallels between the Yeti crab, which lives at the bottom of the ocean near the hydrothermal vents, and Seattle's gay bar scene. <laughs> Not necessarily a connection that everyone would make, but it's done really beautifully. And I think what's really neat about this book is 
it touches on a bunch of themes, adaptation, survival, sexuality, but re really pulls all these ideas together is the idea that differences in diversity are present across the natural world and that this is really a strength and not a weakness of the system. That sounds great. There's also another book we should mention that also does this like pulling you into the world to immerse you in both nature and science. And this was An Immense World by Ed Young. I thought that this one would relate to the one we just discussed. It's like if you're here for the thoughtful meditation on the natural world, but you want a little more animal umwelt, you know, <laughs> here's this book, which takes you on a, a deep dive into the sensory world of animals. So looking at how they smell and hear and touch and see and and magnetically divine their surroundings. So there's lots of, you know, silly stories where uh, Young goes kind of head to head in various contests with animals that end up besting him. And then these like charming anecdotes about the scientists who study them. That sounds great. Next, we have a sci-fi book. I'm so glad that there is fiction in this list. And this is a good transition to the what the heck are we going to do about climate section. So this book is called A House Between the Earth and Moon. It's, I guess, in general about the possibility of escaping Earth when conditions get really bad. This seems very of the now. So this is A House Between Earth and the Moon, and this is by Rebecca Sherm. It's a sci-fi story that kind of has it all. So it's got billionaires scheming to escape Earth before climate change renders it unlivable. It's got space hijinks. There's this storyline about these invasive technology that has massive privacy implications. And so there's kind of a bunch of timely issues that we're grappling with. Climate change, inequality, data privacy. There's even a little bit about the tensions between publicly funded and privately funded research. The book's main narrative centers on a team of scientists that have been tasked with getting this luxury space station up and running for billionaires who are trying to escape the increasingly dire uh, climate conditions on Earth. And it's a project that's being bankrolled by the founders of this colossal tech company, which sounds familiar, right? Yeah. So without giving too much of the story away, just say that the entire endeavor is maybe not necessarily what it seems and that the the character's attempts to reckon with this is what propels the the story along. Mm -hmm. So it's a sci-fi book starring scientists dealing with a lot of the issues that we're thinking about a lot these days. Exactly, exactly. Very cool. We're almost at kids' books, but first we're going to talk about a pair of titles on climate justice. And this does seem to fit in with the trends you mentioned for the year, you know, kind of figuring out the role of structures, of society in the kinds of science that happen. Is that why you chose to cover these two? Yeah, exactly. So the two books are Is Science Enough by historian Aviva Chomsky and What Climate Justice Means and Why We Should Care by philosopher Elizabeth Cripps. I wanted to mention these two books because I think it's important for scientists to remember that when we think about anthropogenic climate change, we need to think beyond just scientific descriptions and technical remediation strategies. We also need to think about issues of equity and justice and inclusivity, which these books emphasize in complementary ways. Is Science Enough looks at this by encouraging readers to rethink our current economic paradigms, which are inherently unsustainable. And then what climate justice means does this by presenting some very clear evidence that the climate change is disproportionately affecting people who have really done the least to cause it, and then arguing that it's our moral responsibility to mitigate it for especially those of us who have done the most harm. 
Okay, so let's move on to the kids book that we're going to talk about. This one, it looks like it would really actually be good for my daughter. It's called The Science Spell Book, Magical Experiments for Kids. Okay, they talk about this in the, the site that I read. They call it real magic. Isn't that kind of a contradiction? <laughs> yeah, I think like what's really lovely about this book is that it's, of course, like we don't think of magic and science as being two things that can go together. But this idea of using children's excitement about the world, curiosity to introduce some basic science to them. So this is a compendium of 25 different activities. They're divided into five categories. So there's infusions, which explore plants as pigments and indicators, and sorcery, which looks at electromagnetism and other fundamental forces. There's alchemy, and that describes physical and chemical changes, and mimicry, which looks at plants and animals for engineering inspiration. It's actually very cute and very sweet. Finally, let's touch on this movie that you flagged. And I watched the trailer, and oh my goodness, the visuals on this. Can you tell us a little bit about it? This movie is called Fire of Love. It's directed by Sarah Doza. Um, we actually reviewed it when it came out at Sundance, but it's just out on Disney Plus now. So the film centers on the story of a pair of volcanologists, Katya and Maurice Kraft, and features this really magnificent archival recordings of volcanic eruptions that they, they actually captured before they died together while documenting an eruption. I would say it's worth watching for the stunning footage alone, but the, the film subjects are really fascinating. They were contemporaries of Jacques Cousteau, and they cultivated a very similar intrepid public image where they cast themselves as wandering volcanologists and did all these risky stunts and made all these provocative statements that landed them in the press all the time. I just cannot say enough about what this looks like. It gives you that terrifying, amazing perspective on volcanoes, getting close to things that are way too hot, wearing like kind of ridiculous looking safety suits. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I thought that it was CGI. Like I thought that some of the footage, I didn't believe that it was real, but it is real. It's amazing. That's great. Okay. That is our whole list, Valerie. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? I was just going to flag one book I'm looking forward to in 2023 is uh, Kate Zernicki's The Exceptions. This is a book that's going to be looking at the story of molecular biologist Nancy Hopkins, who in the 90s became convinced that women faculty at MIT were being discriminated against. And she spearheaded a committee that carefully collected data that ended up proving that this was the case. Female faculty had lower salaries, they had smaller lab space, they had fewer resources. Kate Zernicki is the journalist who actually broke that story for the Boston Globe. Oh, wow. I think it'll be really neat because this happened 20 years ago. And so I, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, why are we revisiting it now? Like, what has changed? What remains the same for women in science? I'm really looking forward to this one. Well, thank you so much, Valerie, for sharing all these amazing books with us. And I can't wait to do it again. Absolutely. Okay. If you want to find some of these books that we discussed from the show page, we'll Link you to the reviews. There's also a link to the trailer for Fire of Love. Thanks again, Valerie. You're welcome. Valerie Thompson is Science's Books Editor. You can find a link to everything we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or better yet, take our survey at science.org slash podcast. Again, that's science.org slash podcast. The link is also in the show description. You can listen to the show on the website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.